Well, good morning, church. If you have not already, would you go ahead and turn in your copy of God's Word to Psalm chapter 4 this morning. It's where we'll be spending our time considering this portion, meditating upon it. And as we prepare to do so, let's go ahead and ask that the Lord would be our great helper, not only sustaining our lives, but being our teacher this morning and helping us to hear, to receive, and to respond rightly to his word. Our God and Father, we look to you this morning, mindful that you are the one who, by your own word, has spoken everything into existence, and by your same power that you sustain and uphold every particle, every aspect, every far galaxy, and every grain of sand by your power, by your will. And Lord, it's in recognition of your great worth and in acknowledgement of your great power, and most especially the declaration of your great grace that we come to you as your people, asking that you would help us, that you would sustain us, Lord, that you would create faith where it does not exist, and that you would sustain faith where it is weak, that you would strengthen us according to your word by the ministry of your spirit. Lord, it's our deep desire that you would accomplish this, because as we have prayed and sung that We are the first to acknowledge that we, in and of ourselves, are insufficient to sustain ourselves. We're insufficient by ourselves to make sense of our lives. We need your aid. We need your wisdom. We need your instruction, your correction, even your rebuke and your admonition. So, Lord, be our good shepherd this morning and faithfully feed us and lead us by your own word. We ask that you would do this, that we might see Christ this morning in the scriptures, as you behold him and before our eyes, as you place him clearly in front of us, and as being our chief shepherd, that you would bear us up, we pray, forever. Amen. Whose opinion of you matters the most? Is there someone, if they were to praise you or to speak well of you, that it would just overwhelm you with this flood of confidence? Who might that be? Or on the other hand, is there something that could be said about you that even if it was untrue, would crush you to this point of despair? Maybe you've lived long enough to know that not everyone will always speak well of you. Not everyone thinks of highly of you as others may do. And some, and recognizing this, some may even slander you. Some may speak evil of you. Some may spread lies about you, accusations that are completely unfounded. So I ask in light of that, how would you or how have you responded to those accusations? As followers of Jesus, we've been explicitly warned that to bear Christ's name will mean, in some form, slander, hatred, opposition, and that, in fact, according to Jesus, we should be especially concerned if all men speak well of us. So given the fact that such opposition dishonor, even evil, they are bound to come our way at some point, we need to ask, 
not only is it possible to just endure such seasons, but the greater question, is it actually possible to be at rest, to know true contentment in the midst of them? Well, Psalm 4 would teach us that the Christian, the disciple of Christ, is the only one that can actually know true joy and deep rest in the midst of shame and accusation. The only way that you can honestly survive such an assault is if you can say something of God. So let's look to Psalm 4 to find out what that is. Because David's response to such a season serves to be the Holy Spirit's instruction for us. We are to read this prayer, we are to consider his response, and we are to seek God for what he finds. So let's consider it in this path. We're going to consider the fact that we need to remember in faith, what we see in verse 1, Respond in trust, verses 2 to 5, and then rest in confidence, verse 6 through 8. Remember in faith, respond in trust, and rest in confidence. This is the way, the path, the model for us of how we would respond to such seasons of slander and accusation. He begins by instructing us and in that as God's people, we are to Remember in faith. Look back at verse 1. To the choir master with stringed instruments, a psalm of David. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. Perhaps you've heard or even been instructed in this way how muscle memory is a thing that is so often praised and it's often taught in many disciplines as it is this natural reflex that becomes so ingrained in you that your body responsively, reflexively responds seemingly without thinking. That it just becomes the natural reflex because it's become this muscle memory. And how we respond to mistreatment or unfair assessments or malicious lies is really the most important spiritual muscle memory that we could ever develop. Before David says anything to anyone, before he takes action or moves in any particular direction, what he does is that he first remembers in faith. That's the substance of what's happening here in verse 1. He remembers, first of all, God's authority. And David teaches us here so well by modeling for us what we are to do when we are wounded by the sting of, of false accusations. Because while we can be those who so quickly form our rebuttal in our mind, oh yeah, okay, well you said this, and well done on this, and then this logical statement over here. Or we can be so quick to call and just to begin to, to vent to a friend, or fire off a quick text. David pauses to remember in faith. He is surrounded by right now by those who are seeking to condemn him, to slander him with lies, as he says, that are just empty or vain words. But he calls to mind, first, whose opinion matters most. 
and the one who knows the truth about him, the one, as we saw in Psalm 3, who promises to be his shield, his glory, his lifter of his head. David looks to God, and he says, You are my protector. You are the one who will maintain my cause. You are the God of my righteousness. That is to say, that God is the one who is his vindicator, the one whose final opinion matters. You are the one who has authority over my righteousness. You are the God of my righteousness. To you, I look. To you, I'm crying out. Why is this so important? Well, if God is your righteousness, then you are freed up to not have to defend yourself around every corner, to ensure that you are setting your name straight so that every possible scenario and person knows that's not really happened. That's not who I am. That's not what was said. The person who knows who God is and remembers by faith God, God of my righteousness, you can take a breath before you do anything or say anything about this because you don't have to worry and fret of what others may say or think about you because my God, the God of my righteousness, he also happens to be the God of all creation, the Holy One who commands galaxies and rules raging seas and rules over every nation and every person with complete justice and authority And by the way, he hears me when I pray. Others may malign and accuse, but you, God, are the God of my righteousness. So he remembers his authority, but he also remembers his acts. This is the second stanza there of verse 1. You have given me relief when I was in distress. There's such wisdom here in looking back to the faithfulness of God before we look ahead and how we might respond to a particular situation. David says, you have given me relief in the past, and so I come to you on the basis of your proven faithfulness in my life in light of this present difficulty. In light of your proven faithfulness, I come asking again for more faithfulness, more grace. Now, have you noticed how the Psalms so often and so perfectly reflect life? It's not by chance, that's by God's design. In Psalm 3, we heard of David praying for deliverance and God answered him. And here we go again in Psalm 4. Lord, hear me when I cry, answer my prayer, give me relief in my distress. We're picking back up on the same themes. So important for us to see and not just overlook this, that deliverance from one particular difficulty in your life, as we all know, it doesn't result in immediate enthronement and victory over all other difficulties or the eradication of any other trial. Yes, God, you've delivered me in the past, and here I am again. You've done this before in different seasons and in different circumstances, And I'm calling to mind, I am remembering in faith who you are and what you have done. I would encourage you to read through the scriptures and notice how often God's people call on previous acts of God's faithfulness to bolster their faith 
in trial and difficulty. How often do God's people take this up as a very means of approaching God, coming to him in faith, saying, not only this is who you are, but this is who you've proven yourself to be. Please be faithful to your own character in my life here. These are tremendously powerful prayers to pray because you are coming to God on the basis of who he is and how he's revealed himself to be. And so you can not only pray in full assurance, Lord, your will be done because you know this is who God is. You can pray with great confidence knowing that he is sufficient for this particular difficulty, trial, or affliction. Read through scripture and take note of this. Even think of your own life. Have you seen God do this in your life? Can you think of those specific markers where you could even write and say, you've delivered me here? Maybe even your own testimony of how God saved you out of darkness into light was just that first instance where you begin to recognize this. And you see that same pattern repeated again and again and again. Parents, are you modeling this sort of response to your children? Because without a doubt, they're watching and they're listening. And equally assured, they will come to you, even crying over the evil words and malicious rumors that are being spread about them at some point in their life. How will you respond? What in that moment will you point them to? There's no greater counsel than to say, what do we know of God? And how has he shown himself strong on behalf of his people in the past? I don't know why they're saying what they're saying. I don't know why they're doing what they're doing. But I know this. Look who God is. Look what he promises to be for his people. And so when we face wrongdoing or injustice or even just malicious slander, outright lies that would seek to assassinate our character, what is our first response? Here, the Holy Spirit would teach us through the words of David that we must first remember in faith. This is who God is, and this is how he's proven himself to be trustworthy in times past. We remember in faith. But also, what we learn here, verses 2 through 5, is that we are to respond in trust. Verse 2, O men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. Be angry. Do not sin. Ponder on your own hearts and your own beds and be silent. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. I think ultimately the real challenge in any sort of attack like this is to trust in what we know to be true. How often do our minds run ahead and, and begin to gather and assemble opinions of what might be true? I think they said it because of this. Or I think this is happening because of this. Or I feel this, therefore this must be true. And the real challenge in such seasons of afflictions is to not rest upon what we think to be true, but what we know to be true. 
we respond rightly to slander, to evil, to shameful treatment when we respond to others according to what is true. Now, whether David said this in earshot of his accusers or whether it was just preached to himself in solitude of prayer, we don't know. But he responds by trusting in what is true. And that's what we have to see. David addresses these accusers as the sons of men. And I think that's set off in contrast against Yahweh, the Lord, in verse 3. We've got the sons of men saying this, but Yahweh, the self-existent one, says this. And since, really, God was determined to defend David by his own great power. Ultimately, it's a lost cause for any of these adversaries of the world to try and and destroy him, however strong, however mighty, however impressive they are. So here's what David's doing. In essence, he responds to these accusations by placing his confidence in these certain central truths that will put his pain and his affliction and their sin in proper perspective. You see how important that is. He's not dismissing this saying, sticks and stones will break my bones, but words words will never hurt me. Or that's true for you, but this is what's true for me. He acknowledges their words for what they are. It is true, you are lying and slandering and you, you love empty words, but he responds by certain central truths that frame up and make sense of the reality of their words. What are these truths that he responds in? Well, first of all, he tells them in verse 3 what they must know, and then he's going to tell them what they must do. Let's look at the first one in verse 3. He responds by this truth of what they must know. But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call him. Stating the obvious, but David does not look for comfort in his own strength. He does not counter back their lies by boasting of his track record or of his public opinion or the, the might of his army that he led to take the cities. David says, Yahweh sets the godly one apart. Meaning, any position I have, it comes from the Lord. The Lord ordained his days, and that means that he sits upon the throne, not by the will of man. David doesn't sit on this throne even by his own ambition, but David sits on the throne over Israel by appointment of God. The Lord sets the godly one apart for himself. God put me here. That's what he's saying. It is the Lord who anointed me by the prophet Samuel. It's the Lord who spoke to his people and said, this is your king. It is the Lord who ordained all of these events and put me where I am. The Lord sets the godly one apart for himself. And this is not only really the comfort for David, In a way, what is happening underneath all of this is the comfort for every believer. We can't say word for word, hey, the Lord set me 
on the throne of Israel. Therefore, take it up with him. But as Christians, principally, we are able to say what David is saying. There is comfort for every believer in what David is getting at. Because a Christian is one who says, not my will, but yours be done. A Christian, a follower of Christ, is praying that the Lord would direct their steps and order their days. As disciples of Jesus, members of his church, we are asking and praying, Lord, direct me. And if I stray, correct me. Put people in my life to help me. Therefore, what I'm saying is my life does not belong to myself. And I am asking God to direct me, to sustain me. A disciple is not someone who's just looking to forge their own trail, but praying, teach me, direct my steps, place me where you want me. And then what we see in Scripture, that great counterbalance to this, is what God promises to do. God promises, and he proves his faithfulness to us, but he says, I will not forsake the work of my own hands. I'm going to begin a work in you, and I'm going to bring it to completion. Paul would encourage the Philippians. He promises to perpetually defend you as he receives you in his gracious favor. Therefore, a Christian is someone who can walk fearlessly ahead because God sets his people apart. He marks them out and he says, I will be gracious to them. I will provide for them. I will sustain them. I will never leave them or forsake them. He is attentive to their cries. He hears them like a father does to his children. So David, he preaches this to himself. He preaches it to those who slander him, that the Lord sets apart his own, and he graciously deals with them in favor. He says, you must know this. But then in verse 5, the other truth that he responds is, is there is something that you must do. In short, David calls them to repentance. Be angry, tremble if you like, shake and be agitated, but do not let this anger of yours lead you into into sin. Instead, go to your bed, find some solitude, close your mouth, and consider your hearts. That's what he says there in verses 4. And in verse 5, he says, basically, instead of loving vain words, instead of seeking after these lies that you're driven by, be silent. Consider the condition of your own heart. Instead of offering up these hypocritical prayers and hypocritical worship and hypocritical sacrifice, offer right sacrifice to God. Put your trust in him. That is what you must do. Now, that takes a bit of boldness to say but he's responding in trust to what he knows to be true. Friends, does this sort of confrontational language sound strange to you? Do you have a hard time imagining yourself loving someone enough to urge them to repent of their opposition to God? If so... Can I suggest that perhaps you've misunderstood the definition of love and what loving your neighbor often sounds like within the pages of Scripture? Most will agree Jesus was loving. 
We want to be like Jesus. Jesus loved. Amen. Have you read the words of Jesus? Have you read all of the words of Jesus? Mark chapter 1, the introduction to really Mark's gospel, he gives us this narrative and it says in verse 14, now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. That's great. And saying the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. You're heading a certain way and I'm telling you to turn around. Matthew 28, 18. The ascended, resurrected Christ speaks to his people. Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all I have commanded you. To call others to obedience and to teach them the commands of God is the most loving thing we can do. Paul would continue, he would exhort Timothy. 2 Timothy 4.2, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season. And sometimes preaching the word to others sounds like reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. In that same book, chapter 3, we often quote 2 Timothy 3.16 because it tells us of the sufficiency and origin of Scripture, that all Scripture is breathed out by God. But do you know the rest of that verse? Not only that it's profitable, but it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, and for correction, and for training in righteousness. Or how about Paul's exhortation to the church at Thessalonica? 2 Thessalonians 3.13, As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person. Have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Galatians 5.19, Now, the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not Inherit the kingdom of God. And then he goes on in chapter 6 and says, Brothers, if anyone is caught up in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore them in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch. If God really is the one who rules over all the earth, if he really is the rightful authority over all his creatures, and he has given us his law that we might know him and know his ways, are we not then obligated to obey him? And if he promises to always deal with us in righteousness, 
then would it not be perfectly reasonable to speak up when others oppose his will and do not trust him? Would that not be the most loving and rightful thing to do? I think too often we believe that perpetual niceness along with a passive smile or even saying nothing at all is actually the loving thing to do in situations. As if we could nice people into the kingdom of heaven. When actually, loving your neighbor means patiently looking for opportunities to speak of the authority and the goodness of Christ. Speaking up asking questions, pointing out inconsistencies. Hey, I've heard you say this, but how do you work through this when this happens? Looking for those opportunities to show that the good authority of Christ is good for his creation. Looking for opportunities to speak of how not only God rules in authority, but how God provides for us as rebels, would that not be the most loving thing to do? And what does David do in the midst of such strong adversity? He responds by what is true, by calling others to repent. We need to take notice of this. That is most often how we respond rightly to sin and even to accusations. You don't have to do it maliciously or fire back in the heat of anger, but with, as Paul says, there's a spirit of gentleness. There is a pleading that happens. There's a genuine love that must be conveyed in such words. But because this is true, I must speak. Because he is king, I must speak. So let me ask you, who is next to you at your cubicle, your fence line, maybe even your breakfast table. Are there potential opportunities to speak of Christ and how we must place our trust in his ways, in him? Friends, if you see a fellow church member who is caught in sin and you are watching them continue to neglect God's good and clear instruction for their lives, would it not be the most loving thing to speak up? David is such a model for us in this because, yes, we live in a fallen world and the nations continue to rage against Christ and his rule. But as his people, we have been deputized. We have been authorized to speak on his behalf of this king. Do you know, Christian, that is why you are here? That you have such a job to speak of Christ and his rule and the goodness of his rule and the grace that he extends to rebels? That's what it means to be a Christian and a member of a church. We follow David's lead here by responding in trust, knowing that God's truth for our co-workers and friends and and our neighbors is what they need. Now, remember, in all of this, that as we read the words of David, we hear them as David speaking. But we also read this knowing that David is really just the echo 
of a greater voice. He's the shadow of a greater image of the true and the greater king, the eternal king, whom the Lord has set upon his holy hill to rule and to judge the nations. So in a way, verses 2 through 5 are what the risen Jesus continues to proclaim this morning, right here, calling all of us in our sin and in our rebellion. Listen again as the risen Christ who sits upon his throne would speak these words. O men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. Yahweh hears when I call to him. Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts and on your beds and be silent. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. You see, that is what the risen Christ preaches this morning to every single one of us who would in any way of our lives be disconnected or disjointed in what he calls us to do. He calls us to repentance, to come to him. See, because repentance is the right response to any sort of distortion or disobedience to Jesus' rule. It is the truth that we are all called to respond to. And Christ preaches that to us this morning, and his word urges us to do so. But there's one last section. Not only does David respond in faith and respond in, in trust, but then there is this rest in confidence. Down at verse 6. There are many who say, Who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. In peace I will both lie down and sleep for you alone, O Lord, make me to dwell in safety. If you're remembering in faith who the Lord is, if you're responding in trust, assured of the Lord's ultimate victory and authority and power, then you, like David, can rest in confidence knowing that he will deal with his people just as he promised in lavish grace, mercifully providing for them and sustaining them even in the face of evil. So do you see what David does here? How he draws out this contrast between his present circumstances and his testimony of assurance? Look at what he does in verse 7. He's saying, essentially, his enemies may be sitting back in lavish luxury with silos filled with grain and glasses filled with wine, but the goodness of the Lord fills him with more joy than all the earthly abundance could provide for. The very same elements that ought to bring you all the security in the world and the very drink that testifies, today is a good day. We are feasting. He says, the Lord has put more joy in my heart than any sort of circumstantial earthly provision could ever provide. And then in verse 8, he says, he may be wounded or surrounded by his enemies. He may be maligned and lied to. But instead of replaying those accusations in his mind, he has this deep, abiding sense of peace. 
the sort of peace and contentment where you can just crawl into bed, fluff your pillow, close your eyes, and you're out. Maybe even the sort of sleep that you haven't had in years. David says, I lay down and I rest in peace. I sleep. Do you know the goodness of the Lord and your present circumstances that could enable you to say this? Because remember, it wasn't just David had it easy right now, and the Lord's his shield and his peace, and I sleep contently. Do you know the goodness of the Lord in your life that could produce such a confidence regardless of what is happening in your life? Because it is only coming to the settled conclusion that the Lord always does good to his people, that then we can say, I know deep rest in abiding joy. If you do not know the goodness of the Lord for his people, then you cannot say, I'm resting well. If you are not convinced that the Lord only does good towards his people, then you cannot say, in peace I will both lie down and sleep. For you, O Lord, make me to dwell in safety. Because if you are not convinced that the Lord is for you, then you cannot say you will always make me dwell in safety because in the back of your mind, you are constantly wondering, this may be it. This is when he's punishing me. This is when he's not going to answer me. This is, when, this is the moment that he's going to turn his back on me. Make no mistake, God is the highest good of man. That is the testimony of all of Scripture. The Scriptures begin with this account of God creating man in his own image and in his own likeness in order that we should then know God as our creator and and love him with all of our heart and live with him in this eternal blessedness. And the Bible ends with this description of the new Jerusalem, and all the citizens of this new city see God face to face, and they dwell with God in perfect contentment and peace. That is the bookends of the entire narrative of what we're given in Scripture. And between these two great moments, what do we find? We hear the revelation of God that unfolds in this great, comprehensive promise of grace. I will be a God to you, and you shall be my people. That is the continued refrain that gets unfolded throughout all of the pages of Scripture. And the high point of this revelation, really the the loudest point of this declaration, comes from the Father, through the Son, the Word be made flesh, that He is Emmanuel. He, my Son, is God with you. Christ, then, not only reveals the Father to us, but in himself, he gives us the Father. Christ is God expressed and God given. And so the fullness of this experience of this great promise here of God dwelling with his people, it's fulfilled and it's founded in Jesus. God gives himself to his people that his people could then give themselves to God in full assurance. Why am I saying all of this? Because the only one, the only person 
who can really know safety in the midst of danger, the only one who can really know rest, true rest in the midst of adversity, joy in the midst of pain, is the one who can say, O God of my righteousness. Where David began is where he ends. You can only say verse 8 if you can honestly say verse 1. O God of my righteousness. There is one who has put their trust in the Lord, assured that the Lord hears them when they call and answers them in goodness every time. This is the one who, who comes asking and, and seeking and knocking, <clears throat> the one who's, who's looking for goodness and safety, and they're not coming on the basis of their own credentials. They're not coming on the basis of how long it's been since they last gave in to that besetting sin. They come and they trade on the credit of Christ. You can rightly say, O God of my righteousness, if you have fled to Christ and said, cover me in your righteousness, take my sin, take my shame, take my evil heart of unbelief and clothe me in your righteousness. Because the Christian is one who knows there are actually accusations that could be said about me. These might be malicious and vain, empty words full of lies, but the Christian knows, actually, you could say a lot worse. I know my heart. And that's not true. But boy, if you knew the truth. See, a Christian is one who identifies with all that God affirms and all that God condemns at the crucifixion. Do you understand that? What that means is, at the cross of Christ, I agree with God's judgment of me. And at the cross of Christ, I agree with God's justification of me. I am fully embracing both. I agree I deserve death. I deserve the wrath of God. And I agree by faith in what you proclaim. I'm justified that that cross testifies the payment for the sin that that I deserve. The Christian's abiding rest and enduring confidence is not their zeal. It's not their endurance. It's not their reputation. But it's wholly upon what God says about them. Others may slander you and malign you. The devil himself may tempt and assault you. But what does God say about you? That is the most important estimation of who you are and what ultimately matters in your life. Christ, by his suffering, has in essence and truth on behalf of his people satisfied the justice of God relative to their sins, securing for his people the righteousness of God that comes to us by faith. See, Christ is not only a Savior because he reveals the Father to us and says, this is the God that you were created to worship. He reveals the Father, but he also saves us as our Redeemer, coming to us, taking our place of his chosen people, 
and taking upon himself all of their sins. So on his behalf, he bears the punishment which they deserve. He completely and truly satisfies the justice of God, and he bestows upon his people the righteousness that they could not obtain by themselves, but is most surely God's word over them, righteous. And on the basis of the satisfaction of his merits, he delivers his people from all punishment that they would deserve. And by this wonderful news, he declares his people to be my people, my righteous people. And so, because of all of that, we can be assured then of lasting peace and enduring safety. We can be assured that the Lord will always and only show his people perfect goodness. Christian, do you understand that in the midst of your circumstances right now? If you can say, O God of my righteousness, because Christ has become your righteousness, then your Father only and always shows you good. That is the promise of Psalm 4. We rest assured all his ways are good. He will not punish me. He will not abandon me. For Christ has already borne all my punishment, and the Father abandoned the Son that he might receive me forever, always. God does promise to bless his people. Yahweh, the Eternal One, who says he'll take up his glory and he will shine it upon his people, not in judgment, not to strike them down, but he will cause his countenance, his glory to shine upon them, to be gracious to them. That's the, the blessing of number six. The same God who does this promises to lift up his very countenance upon his people so that they would know peace. See, that is the unique position that the child of God has. I have the presence of God mediated by the person of Christ, and the presence of God is with me and over me, not to curse me, but to bless me. In myself, in my sin, the presence of God should damn me but I come on the basis of a better righteousness, not my own, but Christ. And so I say, O God of my righteousness. And when I say, who will show us some good? I raise my hand and I say, the Lord will show me some good. That's all he will show me because he is the God of my righteousness. Therefore, I will lie down and rest. I will dwell in safety because of who he is. May the Lord continue to refine us and stabilize us in these great truths so that whatever days may come in our lives, we would be able to bear the same testimony of David and join in the same chorus as him, speaking of the Lord's grace and his goodness. Let's pray that God would do that. Ask him to help us. Father, we rejoice to hear this morning that we can make sense of the world around us and even the sin and the rebellion within our own hearts. We ask that you would take your word and you would cause it to bring forth the fruit that you have ordained, that you would cause it to bear much fruit. Lord, help us to respond in faith. Help us to remember all that you are and all that you have done. We ask that the truth of who you are and what you've declared would direct our steps and our thoughts and our mouths. And Lord, ultimately, may we be the ones who are resting in your supreme goodness convinced that it, that is all that you have for us, is goodness. 
because of your Son and his righteousness. Bear us up and strengthen us in the midst of adversity and trial, even in the midst of our own foolishness and sin. May we know the grace that is extended and surely lavished upon us as we come in faith. Lord, we ask that you would guard us and keep us against all those empty, vain hopes of security and all those shallow veneers of righteousness. Lord, we long for the righteousness of God that is ours by faith in Christ. Continue to direct our steps and continue to be our shield and the lifter of our head because you are the the very one who is our glory. Do this that you might be seen as the gracious and good one, that you might be known as the king who rules over his people, that you might be known as the king who will one day return and establish your throne of righteousness in every four corners of this earth. And until that day, would you guard us and keep us, continuing to sustain us, that we might live for you. In Christ's name, amen.